Hi, everyone. This is Mitch Ashley with DevOps.com, and you're listening to another DevOps Chat Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nikita Shemganov, co-CEO and co-founder of MemSQL. Our topic today is really looking at the state of database in the market and technology as we think about database now. Nikita, welcome to uh, DevOps Chat. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Would you start by introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do and a little bit about MemSQL. Absolutely. My name is Nikita Shamganov. I'm, I'm a co-CEO and co-founder of a database company, uh, MemSQL. Prior to MemSQL, I, uh, I worked at Facebook uh, and prior to that uh, at Microsoft uh, on the SQL Server kernel. So I'm a, a kernel engineer by training. Uh, and before that, I, I graduated with the PhD program from uh, St. Petersburg, Russia. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's jump right into it. We were talking a little bit before we started uh, the podcast recording. You know, databases have been around for a long time, and uh, you know, the technologies created decades ago are still in production in many areas. But there's a lot of changes that are happening too. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of the market forces that are happening to uh, change the database environment? Uh, absolutely. Um, so there are several uh, market forces um, and uh, industry forces that are, I would say, piercing uh, through the market uh, um, and, uh, and technology. And the first one is that the data volumes are growing, mm-hmm. right? And uh, a lot of companies, um, and uh, you don't have to go far for examples, uh, you know, think companies like Uber and uh, Netflix and Amazon and Google, drive most of their value from data, right? That somebody in the, in the 80s would describe any of those companies as a glorified database application. But of course, they are a lot more uh, uh, than just that. And, and with the data volumes and, and, and variety of that data growing, what separates winners from losers is how well people can capture and act on data, mm-hmm. right? A great example is, uh, you know, when you hail in an Uber, you know, you, you pop in your phone and then you know exactly um, where the cars are, how fast they're going to arrive, uh, how long it's going to take you to the destination. And, and that's really, really powerful. We all, we're all used to this right now, but 10 years ago, that was not a reality and not a possibility. So, so that is the, 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 the force number one, right? Um, people see who are those companies that are advancing in the market and they want to take uh, uh, on the same opportunity in, in their space, in their category. They also are afraid of being disrupted by the next Uber, the next Facebook, the next Amazon, exactly. particularly Amazon. Uh, so the, the second um, market force that is, is going through the market is, is architectural. And because the data volumes are growing and the Moore's law is not working anymore, so we cannot just rely on better, cheaper hardware. We have to build distributed systems. And in the database world, distributed systems, for the most part, have been exotic until quite recently. And we're starting to see distributed database systems. And the reality is just very hard to build a distributed uh, uh, kind of system of record transactional system and make it uh, you know, production ready because the, the amount of technology that goes in there is enormous and different and kind of other database products that are successful in the market are, have been products for 30 plus years. 
you know, thinking about Oracle, thinking about SQL Server. Mm -hmm. And when this massive architectural change comes in, where it's a business reality that you need to re-architect those systems, then it becomes very, very hard for the vendors to actually uh, deliver at those. So that's ask, the second market force. Let me ask you a little bit about that, uh, Nikita. If I could, about the, systems. Go ahead. the distributed architectures. Do you see that happening largely because of the uh, displacement between on-prem data centers and private clouds and public clouds? Is it more pushing content to the edge and doing caching? Is it pushing content to more, a geographical location? What's forcing the distribution of databases? This is a wonderful question, uh, first and foremost, because I was about to say that the third mega uh, market force that, um, that is uh, happening right now is move to the cloud, mm. right? And cloud, uh, uh, if you make a parallel with electricity, Right, the majority of the world consumes electricity in the cloud. You know, you just plug your stuff into a socket, and here comes your electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, On-premises generators still exist for uh, in, at important places, manufacturing, healthcare, hospitals, uh, but it's a tiny percentage of the global electricity consumption. Similarly, it makes it just makes too much sense to consume IT in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, within IT, uh, you know, there's applications, analytics, uh, databases, uh, machine learning, you know, all the whole spectrum of services that typically a, a cloud provider uh, now offers. Now, if we buy into this, this worldview, and certainly we, we see what happened with electricity, uh, and this is the same thing that's happening in IT, uh, then, um, then you can split this thing into different workloads. Um, and once you, you know, zoom in on the database workloads, and you will realize that yes, you want to take workloads that currently run in data centers and shift them into the cloud. Cloud's different. Um, you know, the most important thing in the cloud is the software just runs as a service. But also, it creates an opportunity to re rebuild every single piece of IT for the cloud. And that's already happening in, in our space. It's already happened in data warehousing, um, in, um, you know, but it also uh, happened with identity uh, uh, because of Okta. It, it, it happened with cloud storage, with services like S3 on Amazon or Dropbox as a high-level service. Um, so basically, as infrastructure IT is shifting towards the cloud, we are rebuilding it for the cloud. And now it just so happens that uh, uh, through that rebuild, you want to cater to the next generation workloads. That's where mm -hmm. distributed systems comes in. Uh, and um, also um, you architecting for the cloud because the cost equation in the cloud is different. Um, so being scalable and elastic allows you to provide better cost equation uh, as opposed to uh, uh, legacy architectures. So if you take an Oracle and yeah, you can run it in the cloud in the VM, no problem. Well, actually it's gonna be way too slow and way too expensive as opposed to the system that's architected specifically for the cloud uh, that um, scales both for cost, right? So you can only, you, you will only consume as uh, many resources as you need from the storage and compute standpoint, storage, compute, network bandwidth, whatever, whatever you, uh, uh, you need uh, to run the workload. Uh, but it also is going to be a lot more efficient 
because you know running a database as a VM, everybody will tell you this is not such a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a <laughs> database service architected for the cloud, right. then uh, uh, you can build for and around uh, around limitations and for uh, all the services and uh, uh, and resources that are available for the cloud. What I'd like to ask you about that is it seems like there's a parallel between lift and shift for applications and lift and shift for database. I mean, it is an architected for the cloud if you're just taking the application into a cloud cloud environment, but you've got to re-architect, rebuild, take advantage of things like database as a service, for example. Is that correct? Absolutely. Right. And then the application space, um, what's different than the cloud is that certain, certain applications can be more popular than others. And if you just put those apps as you had on-premises and VMs, so very likely you, you both over-provision and under-provision resources. Mm-hmm. For um, less popular applications, you are, uh, are wasting the whole VM to run an app. And for a very popular application, you don't have enough network bandwidth or CPU to run this app at scale. And that's why Kubernetes uh, really changed the game. And if you build against Kubernetes, you can trivially uh, scale stateless applications. Um, uh, And then if you run it in the cloud, of course, the database that you use to power those applications, you consume as a service. Say a little bit more about that, because uh, we've talked on uh, other webinars and podcasts about the statefulness of data versus the more dynamic nature of building software and rebuilding software uh, that may not match up with the state of the database. How do you handle that in a Kubernetes environment? So there are two pieces to this. The first one is you run your application uh, in a Kubernetes environment and you consume data through a database as a service. Uh, So that is a blueprint of a cloud architecture today. Let's say you run your Kubernetes on Amazon. Uh, your application is written in whatever language. Let's you know, let's say Node.js, mm-hmm. and uh, you fire up DynamoDB um, using an Amazon example as a service. You connect to that database from the application, and there it is. There's your app. Now, in the world of relational databases, which by the way is a much larger slice of the market than than object databases. Sure. And for a very good reason. You can run it in a similar fashion. You know, in this case, you can launch MemSQL as a service, you know, run your application inside a a Kubernetes cluster. The other thing that you can do is you can bring MemSQL with you into the Kubernetes environment. And that gives you control and cloud portability. Uh, Now, not only you deploy your application and into Kubernetes and the application scales, depending on the demands uh, and the popularity of the app, but also the database that uh, stores the data and powers the app can be deployed in the same Kubernetes cluster and it will do the same thing. It will scale or contract depending on the needs of your application. Mm -hmm. So what it gives you, uh, it gives you cloud portability. So you can pack your bags and go from AWS to Google, for example, and, that, and, and the other thing that allows you to do is uh, to take it and bring it uh, uh, down, right, uh, from cloud to on-premises. And today, the reason to do so um, is usually twofold. It's either security and, and, and compliance, or it's cost. 
All right, if the workloads are pretty static and you don't, you cannot drive good amount of efficiency through the elasticity of your both application and uh, data infrastructure, then uh, on-premises may still be cheaper, and then that creates an incentive for you to bring it down on the ground. How important is it to have kind of a single tool to do ETL versus separating those and as you move not only within one cloud but across clouds? Well, I think at the end of the day, uh, we are talking about lock-in and we're talking about de- developer productivity. Those mm-hmm. are completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, now, lock-in is, is something that uh, a lot of people in our space experience with Oracle as a vendor, sure. where uh, they go through what they describe as extortion cycles. Every time an Oracle renewal comes in, then, um, then you, you end up negotiating with Oracle. And if you want to reduce the amount of the database spend, uh, it becomes a very difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, Oracle runs an audit, which they have the right to. Uh, so they inspect and find all the applications that consume Oracle. If you reduce the amount of consumption, Oracle jacks up the, the maintenance fee or, or jacks up the, the next license fee. So it's really, really hard to get out of, of, uh, uh, of spending a lot of money on this vendor. We hear that time and time again in major, major enterprises. I had a conversation with a CIO of a major bank and the Oracle spend there is $1 billion over, <laughs> over several years. That's surprising. And this is absolutely insane if you think about it, right? The reason to that is that Oracle has been a great partner to deliver in their services you know, cost aside, uh, you know, banking runs uh, in that bank. It, you know, it's a a consumer bank and it it runs on Oracle. But at the same time, competitors catch up to the functionality, right? Manteco comes with a very strong system of record capabilities. And to this day, that has been the stronghold of Oracle. And, um, you know, with a much more attractive uh, price, with a much more flexible deployment model and the ability to run in the cloud as a database as a service, where we guarantee SLAs and uptime. And with an integration with AI and ML, we see that slowly but surely that equation is shifting. And you know, people seriously ask questions, why would we spend so much money on this technology? And can we not do this? We would save hundreds and hundreds of millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and drive shareholder, shareholder value here. Um, in addition to that, we'll have our development teams move uh, a lot faster, right? So back to your question about cross-clouds and developer productivity, right? The first one is lock-in, and I mm-hmm. gave you an example of an Oracle lock-in, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, now the CIOs don't want to fall into the same trap by getting married to a single cloud provider. And, you know, thank God we have multiple cloud providers available on the market, of which three in the United States are very, very strong and, you know, for the most part, similar in the capabilities, GCP, Azure, and AWS. So um, it's very typical for a key enterprise to choose one, uh, two or three, all three cloud vendors. So that uh, prevents the lock-in. However, in order to like truly avoid lock-in, you got to choose service providers that allow to run their software the same way on all the clouds. Exactly. And ideally, they deliver their services as a, as a path service. 
you know, like a database as a service, and that service is available on every cloud. And if that's the case, then, you know, you take a dependency on the vendor, but you are not taking a dependency on the mega vendor, which is one of the clouds. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that is something that is top of mind for every CIO that I know. Well, you make a good point about Oracle, uh, kind of going back to the lock-in of the 2000s and maybe 90s. You know, for VLDB, that was really the best game in town, arguably. You could also say Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that isn't true today. You've got many options when you go to cloud providers and you know, folks like yourselves, I would imagine, live in all of those cloud environments or multiple of them. So you can also serve customers that, of course, are going to have a multi-cloud strategy. Absolutely. You know, I could have said it better. Okay, great. Lock that one in. Great. Um, What's the number one challenge as folks move out of, let's pick Oracle again, move out of that traditional VLDB environment and move into the cloud? What's the paradigm shift that you have to make to really think about how you can leverage the flexibility of the cloud? There's a three-step strategy if you want to get out of, uh, of Oracle. The biggest stickiness of any database technology is all the applications that are built against the database and they're using and, and sharing that data across the applications. And then different database technologies can either be app compatible, you know, an example for that of that is MySQL and AWS Aurora, mm-hmm. right? Aurora is a new database, but the compute piece of it is actually MySQL code. So they're app compatible. If an app works against MySQL, it's going to work against Aurora. So that's why in the low end of the market in which both MySQL and Aurora play, uh, this can be a viable strategy. Um, And it's a very good one, right? Because it's so easy to just point your app at a a different database. And it's very hard for a different database product to achieve application level compatibility uh, between uh, the two databases. The second one is workload compatibility. So a lot of workloads that are running on Oracle can be moved to another database, uh, assuming there is a good enough reason. You know, assuming the database you're moving the workload to has all the set of the, the same set of features and provides strong system of record guarantees and 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 so on and so forth. So, if you are a workload compatible, then um, you can move from one database into another, but you need to put some work. All right, you need to. Uh, augment and, and potentially we, uh, rewrite certain mm-hmm. pieces of the application. Mm-hmm. And in our space, there's a massive piece of the market that is called tier one workloads. Those tier one workloads typically uh, run on Oracle and they have um, either a very, very strong system of record requirements or they have performance requirements uh, or they have availability requirements um, or they have very strong concurrency requirements. And because of our architecture, we practically the only game in town that can be the destination for moving workloads from Oracle and especially systems like Oracle, you know, heavy Oracle systems running on enterprise storage or systems like Oracle Rack or Oracle Exadata over uh, to uh, running on MemSQL. And we have countless examples how we, you know, quote unquote, liberated our customers from, from Oracle. So, uh, and this is, this is uh, you know, frankly, our biggest opportunity. So you, you will have to put some work, but if the pain that you're experiencing is so high that you're willing to put that work, 
we're a fantastic destination for moving your Oracle workloads. Well, excellent. You've been a great guest and uh, fascinating conversation. I wish we had more time to chat more. Maybe we can do that on another podcast. So, well, thank you. Uh, and with my audience, I'd also like to thank you, Nikita Shamganov, for joining us, co-CEO and co-founder of MemSQL. Yeah, very happy to be here. Thank you so much. You bet. And thank you. Thank you to our listeners. This is Mitch Ashley with DevOps.com, and you've listened to another DevOps Chat podcast. Be careful out